0: point that is most relevant is that minority experiences while they may come from different aspects they are the same
1: Welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders. This is the show where I speak with the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I'm joined by Calvinda Dillon. Now, Calvinda is the vice chair of Deloitte UK. She holds a number of additional positions to champion many diversity and inclusion campaigns internally and externally. And she's also had over 25 years worth of experience focused around consumer business technology, media, and telecoms. Welcome to the show, Calvinda. Thank you so much. It's uh, lovely to meet you again. I thought future
0: of work was a while ago, but it feels like it was yesterday. So thank you for organising that event. It was an amazing event. It's good to have you. Uh, Maybe a little bit about me as we get into this. So maybe let's start with the personal, which is always harder to talk about. The professional is sort of always easy to talk about. So born in Coventry. Um, family of third-generation immigrants. I have a younger brother who actually lives in the US. No kids, two Vimerana dogs, who I love and keep me busy. I think, personally, you know, being a, a younger Indian in an immigrant environment, one of the first challenges I really faced was just that, you know, from a very young age, I knew I was gay, and I knew that in the community that I lived in, and the times these issues were coming up, that was always going to be a challenge. But I always say that provoked a lot of positivity in me because I immediately, even as a young 16 year old, knew that really I had to get really good grades I had to work really hard and I had to be successful in some shape or form. I didn't then at that point know what success was going to look like, but I was very, very focused on actually doing really, really well. And I, and I think, you know, I would say that held some truth. I think my parents were really great about it. They are great about it. But I do think it was driven partly by the element of success as well. In my personal life, I've lived and worked in a number of countries and that always, I think, played out again and again. Success somehow forgave you in some ways where you may not have had that forgiveness if I hadn't been successful, certainly in that time. So I think the idea of being your true self and also fitting in was really something that I was mindful of from a very young age uh, in many aspects being a woman being obviously ethnic and then also my LGBT aspect so really it was it was a triple down of many aspects of what society was thinking about what was going on in the world Professionally, I had dreams that I wanted to be in the diplomatic service. Uh, That's what I really wanted to do. I sat the civil service exams. um, I remember my father saying to me, you know, you realize that there are no ethnic people in the diplomatic services, but I just, I don't know. At my heart, I wanted to try even though I thought at that time it may not have been possible. I didn't get the diplomatic services. I actually got the Inland Revenue. Not many people at Deloitte probably know I was at the Inland Revenue, but I spent a few years there and then came into the world of accounting. I started my career at Arthur Anderson and then came over to Deloitte in 2001 uh, and joined them. And over my professional clear, clear, clear career, I've sort of lived in um, New York. I was in L.A., And I was in San Francisco, so really I was in the U.S. for a good eight years. And that gave me a lot of different experiences of the way that the corporate world works, you know, the speed at which it works, which is slightly different, and also taught me that the way that we live our English humour can get you into a bit of trouble when you're in the U.S., where everything has to be quite precise and you have to be quite careful. So, you know, definitely took that journey of cultural adaptation in my time that I don't spend at Deloitte I think I always had a passion for where I came from so even though I didn't grow up in India I always felt that knowing where I came from would be important to my identity so we went back quite a lot visiting the village my brother and I set up a school there we fund young girls from the village through an education program and I think it's not about what I do but I do think you know it was about The sense of identity that it gave me, it made me understand, you know, my ethnic roots and what I would describe as my British roots. And it allowed me actually to bring all those together. So I didn't feel lost being British, but equally, I took the best of my ethnic culture to apply it to my British culture and people always ask me well what would that be and I actually think if you grow up in an Indian family you get to understand politics quite quickly so you sort of instinctively understand that even though your aunt comes over every other day your dad really doesn't quite get on with her and that's never spoken about so if you think about corporate politics it to me it always feels like it's an extended family of who knows who how well do they get on and how do they play with each other I think you kind of I I kind of learned that at a very young age um you know I think for me as I progressed giving back to society in some shape or form was quite important I think you can often make that big debate but actually it's the small things that matter. So I didn't sit around thinking about it for ages. I just picked the things that mattered to me. The school in India mattered to me. I'm on the board of uh, the Fund for Global Human Rights, which really mattered to me because they are really, it's human rights at the core in countries, and it's about activism, and it isn't about a central organization that has thousands of people. And in my Deloitte role, you. Diversity and inclusion, critical, I play a role at Deloitte in all aspects, but really working with the CBI and helping set up Change the Race Ratio campaign is something that I'll be always proud about, Um, and also we are one of the biggest sponsors of Open for Business, which is an LGBT think tank, so that sort of very quickly sums up what I've been doing over the past, I don't know how many years, I'm not going to talk about the years.
1: Oh my goodness, Calvinda, where do I start? First of all, I will say um, I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to meet you in real life, or IRL, as I'm told, the cool expression now is for meeting people in person at Future of Work, which um, was at the back end of last year, my goodness. Um, But there are so many rich cultural pieces that you mentioned here, and I remember that you mentioned when I watched you um, over at the Unilever Uh, summit that I thought wow I'd love to really dig deeper into the hows and whys behind all of these areas and much like many people are listening in I feel that your story resonates with a lot of the experiences I've had and um, also for many who who have found their, their way into this world of diversity inclusion belonging equity and found that it's really struck a chord with them personally and they've found themselves really then projecting that out into the business context but to come from you know what a, a, a pretty humble beginnings in Coventry, and we're in Leamington Spa now, so so not too far away. Um, having really demonstrated such tenacity at an early age, and having then found your way into the world of of corporate, did you find that there were significant challenges on that path? Because I look back at my my own journey as as the adopted. Chinese daughter of white British parents and I think oh my goodness it took me such a long time to find my voice and find the place that I felt I belonged Um, to have seen and heard individuals like yourself um, would have made such a big difference um, if I were to have taken that corporate journey if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think in some ways, I was really fortunate. So growing up, I was the only daughter in extended family of seven other boys. So I sort of learned, you know, even at the age of five, having a voice and how to have one because I think I grew up in that environment. I think in my professional career, sometimes you can't look back and remember all of the challenges, ironically. Of course, there were challenges, but I always had people who understood me and supported me. But if they didn't, I was never afraid to voice how I felt or what we should do. That never feared me because actually... I think my professional journey wasn't a planned journey. I didn't wake up and think I'm going to do these five things to become a partner or these six things. I think it was just a progression, a progression on that really stood some things which was I was going to stay true to myself right and I think that's very hard to do when you come from certain backgrounds and then suddenly you're so successful it's one of the things that really ground you were quite important to me I think if you spoke to people at work they would say I'm straightforward I speak my mind you know uh, there were times in my career that would have been considered a negative right I I would have been categorized as someone who was way too assertive and came across way too hard. But, you know, time has changed. Those are actually the interesting thing for me is that those very comments that 10 years ago would have categorized me as developments are now actually positives, right? So I think we have to stay, we have to speak our mind because that's what inequity is about. We're we're trying to resolve many aspects of inequity and we should work in organisations that let us speak our mind. If you are in an organisation that doesn't let you speak your mind, then you really have to think about why is that and what is your role in that organisation? So having only ever been at Arthur, Anderson and Tulloy, I've always had the opportunity to speak my mind. That doesn't mean someone's always done something about what I was speaking my mind about, but there's always been a place for me to say what I think on any subject, but particularly around d It's really great
1: to know that especially given the fact that there's so many different areas of diversity that would be a personal resonance to you be it lgbtq plus be it being passionate about race and ethnicity um be it the the consumer journey ultimately as we start to see uh you know government um and society investors pay more and more attention to the s of the esg and so on and so forth um was there ever a time where you thought hey you know i i Um, you know, I, I have somewhat of a, of a confused piece here. because I, I have to say I, I did find it and I find it fascinating that you've managed to um, really interweave all and be so proud of that it took me you know quite some time to really find that voice of of difference ultimately um, when generation is a piece, is race and ethnicity there is you know sometimes feeling a little like a chameleon to be able to fit into certain circumstances corporate and or otherwise um, so it's interesting you mentioned humour because it's one thing um that I think does bind us together no matter where we are in the world New York LA London um a good sense of humour uh, seems to be something that breaks down a huge amount of barriers
0: yeah I mean I think being British for me was always about humour BBC and the NHS so I think those three subjects pull. British people together no matter where they are in the world. Of course, challenges. I mean, I think if I I think I I I I, I was very comfortable with ethnicity and I was very comfortable with being a a woman in a world that you know, was dominated by men, and in some ways still is. I think the hardest one for me was really the LGBT aspect. So that took me years. I mean, if you'd have even asked me this question 10 years ago, I probably would not even have told you on this podcast, right? It was. It's only in the last seven or eight years that really that became a more public aspect of my life, partly because I think switching off for me a little bit is keeping your private life private. But I often wonder if that really was an outcome of being an LGBT person versus what I really thought about. And I often think about, that: did I I end up in this place where my private life is very private because that's what I really believe? Or did I end up in this place where my private life is private because I am gay? And I haven't quite philosophically concluded that point. But there comes a time in your career where you think, gosh, and I remember someone saying this to me, there are people sitting outside of your room that would want to hear your story. And in your day-to-day life, you know, you never really think that you're gonna have an impact on anyone else in that way. You kind of, we're in a process, it's like an engineering machine. We go in the morning, we do our work, we come back at home. But that was like one of the most insightful things that someone had said to me and they said, you do realize that there are people sitting outside of your office. I remember exactly where I was when they said to me on which this would be a huge influence. They may actually email me you. They may want to talk to you. They will be going through these exact struggles. That really became a bit of a, I'd say, a positive burden that I carried around. You know, really thinking about it and thinking, this is true, I need to do more. So when I when I decided to take the board role, that was the first time I really became quite public about it so I stopped people saying things like what does your husband do I'm like I don't have a husband and then that becomes a vernacular that you adapt because the first time I said I don't have a husband you end up saying oh I'm so sorry I didn't make you feel uncomfortable and then I'm like why am I saying sorry actually but you know so it's a vernacular and a skill I think actually uh, you build up over time and I've probably only in the last two years got to a place where it's a very comfortable skill for me
1: so incredibly intriguing. So when I speak yeah. to you, when I met you, you are and come across as so confident, so energetic, um, so like nothing could possibly ever, ever bother you at all. And that in itself is incredibly inspiring to see. But LGBTQ plus as a dimension and a lens with which some of us look through the world is one of those things that is so below the surface level. And again, you touched on it multiple times as we've begun this podcast is there's so many rich, different things that make up each of us as human beings. You and I are both female. You and I are both ethnic minorities, quote unquote. Yet the experiences and how we came to be where we are um, driving and leading organizations are entirely diff- different and um, whilst I'm not LGBTQ plus IA myself I always think it's rather much like mental health in, in I suppose my personal situation and that you're choosing do I disclose do I not the language itself even in disclosure makes you think oh goodness I'm talking about something here that perhaps I oughtn't to be um, but to your point future generations of leaders and the many that um you know it's kind of almost easy to forget about that have not seen or heard people in leadership positions that are willing to talk about these things so candidly then do not benefit from the safe space as we like to call it um from hearing these brilliant stories where they too see something of themselves in you and believe then that they can achieve great things within corporate organizations if that's the route they want to go down yeah i think the point that is
0: most relevant is that minority experiences while they may come from different aspects they are the same you feel like a minority you walk into a room and you are the only person in the room that looks like that or you're the only person in that room that thinks like that or you're the only person in that room that feels like that so you sort of and this is the debate around inclusive diversity right so there's been a lot of focus on gender which is fantastic because we still haven't got there But corporate organisations, and we have this debate all the time, you can't just focus on one thing you know you have to focus on all aspects whether it is neurodiversity whether it is disability whether it is race we can't live in a world of, like we have in the last 10 years where we pick one particular mantle and pursue that we have to get more inclusive around all aspects of diversity but there's a there's a real human element for me in this and i remember I probably was only about 32, so this would have been quite brave. And, um, you know, the circumstances warranted a conversation with someone. And I remember saying to them, and this was when, you know, gay marriage was becoming a debate. I remember saying to them, I don't mind having this debate with you because... We do need to debate that you have a different view to me and I have a different view to you. And it's fantastic that we're having a coffee and we're actually talking about it. But my quest human has the right to give another human a right right so all of this really does boil down to many aspects of humanity that no individual or no community or no majority should feel that they have the right to give or take away a right from someone else right and that's what i think we're trying to resolve in the world that we all have a right to the same basic rights so you know that's how i look at the world
1: I think it's a great way to to look at the world. And and it really is, it's the the age old argument of why equity is so much more important than equality ultimately is how do we designate those very specific resources in the areas that they are required. And as ever, and I know that you did some great work around this with change the race ratio, it's what do we have right now? Where are the areas in which we need the very most help and resource? How do we truly level the playing field by ultimately um, giving different allocation of resources in order to achieve what could be hopefully um the the equal opportunity to to the outcome of course we'd love to will, live in a in a in an equal world and society but let's face it that is not the case and so making sure we have specifics and interventions and that we aren't um constantly following this narrative of cookie cutter model to success it's uh Absolutely. um, Paying attention to those differentials with which will give us um, the best objective outcomes. Now, um, talk to us a little bit about some of the the real kind of visions that you had behind a lot of the societal work that you got involved in change race ratio of course was a huge success and um again i'm sure we could do another podcast about about just this because it is um where we need to see more change and that is kind of the senior ceo minus two kind of levels um yeah. but then also um the work you've done with open for business which weaves in so beautifully uh some of the lgbtq plus and sexuality side of things that you mentioned previously so i
0: think The change in race ratio really was a thought that, you know, Lord Karen Billamoria had as soon as he became president of the CBI. And I think, you know, great credit to him as the first ethnic president of the CBI. He decided to openly drive an agenda that was important to him. And we got involved as a firm very early on as he was considering it, him and I had a number of conversations around it. And we sort of developed the campaign theme, the founders, how everything would work. But it's really interesting that, you know, it took us that many years to realize, we were focused on ethnicity in the boards. We hadn't focused on the next generation of people who would, who would become board members. To become a board member, you actually have to have the experience of the exec. And in the same way that I think some of the gender debate has taken place and the LGBTQ debate takes place. So, cause we look at that when we look at our leadership positions in terms of total representation is everything is thought about in a moment, right? so what we were doing with change the race ratio is saying you have to think right now as you plan your succession over the next 10 years who is going to be ready to be present at the exec and deliver ethnic representation who is going to be ready below minus one and when will those people become ready and be trained to become tomorrow's board members otherwise The system becomes a pressure system, right? It's the same people for 15 years. They get called about the same roles, that get get offered the same positions. And that is because they are brilliant. But it's equally also because there's nobody else. And we want to look right. We want to make sure we're represented. The interesting thing about the Change the Race Ratio campaign is that I think mean, it also touches on something that's really important, which is in every aspect of our business, we plan everything. We have targets, we have metrics, we look at our five-year strategy. When it comes to DNI, I believe enough organizations don't have a deliberate enough strategy. And it's the one thing that they do in every other aspect of their business. So there's been a lot of debate about that. The last pillar of change the race ratio is really the importance of the third sector. So change the race ratio just wasn't about corporates. It's also about the third sector. So if you look at representation in the third sector, which is charities and academia, it's probably below business when it comes to ethnic representation and LGBTQ representation. But really, nobody's having a conversation about the third sector. And yet the third sector, if you look at academia, actually supplies all of the talent that we will have as graduates. So it went much broader than just always businesses and always the FTSE 100. It should even at some point venture into government. I always have this debate. Why aren't we all producing our stats, irrespective of the kind of organisation that we are? So really, that was the work of the change the race ratio. It was to push organisations to reflect on a much broader DNI strategy that was more long term and to make deliberate choices and take deliberate actions. We did it. You know, when I joined the board, I think gender representation must have been at 29%. This year, we will have 55%. 55% of the board of North South Europe of Deloitte is now women. That's deliberate action, collaboration, and making good choices.
1: And what gets measured gets managed ultimately. And I love the fact that we are being ultimately um, quite provocative here in a good way. Organizations do need that challenge um, back that ultimately says, uh, as you have mentioned there, we need to be able to drive tomorrow's leaders. Therefore, we have to put positive metrics and interventions in place. And um, with our annual McKenzie Dallas review, we look at those 10 facets, we look at CEO minus two, the work that changed race ratio is doing is superb because it is about the, how do we ensure that talent is able to thrive for the long term you talked about the uh, you know the same people the same roles makes me think of my formative exec search days where it's almost a musical chairs of who's who and who will pop up and appear next and you kind of you know you want to breathe out this big exhale and say well um you know you've heard so many times people say well the candidates don't exist etc etc they absolutely do but in order to actually see true outcomes and positive change we've got to put in the time the effort the money that enables us to develop these next layers down and ultimately it's it is that you know i hate the expression, but the marzipan layer, quote unquote, <laughs> that we really need to see the change affected, because we've got some great people there who are at board level, and it's great um, that you've obviously, um, you know, now gone all the way up to nearly 50%, which is superb, but it's the executives who are full-time within the organisation that we really need to ensure have adequate replacement by way of management within organisations, without putting in that concerted effort and having, um, as you said, a deliberate strategy. We are never going to see talent truly come to the fore in the way that we hope and expect, and frankly need for the sustainability of our businesses and organizations in the future.
0: Where, where the SNESG t- is taking us, and I hope really drives us harder, is what gets measured gets rewarded. So, is there a negative repercussion of not having your DI strategy diverse enough to build tomorrow's business? That's where I hope the S will take us. It will actually link having the right DI strategy, including all of its inclusion of pillows directly to reward. Because actually, what gets measured and is or isn't rewarded is how action takes place. So that, that for me is going to be an interesting next few
1: years. I'm so pleased that you mentioned ESG again. It's another of my favourite conversation <laughs> points. Yeah. Um, and actually a perfect way for us to to summarize some of what we believe the future of work uh, will look like. And who better to ask than yourself, Calvinder? Um, but I truly believe the S will be what the E has been for the last 10 years. I'm kind of there standing on my seat virtually going hurrah. Um, it is about time. This is this is great to see more investment uh, into the S and the fact that this is now exploding off the scenes for all of the right reasons. Obviously we've seen some, you know, pretty tragic world events unfold, but less does not lose this moment in time to really spearhead uh, what needs to now happen. But talk to me a little bit about um, how you've seen the last decade and what you foresee the next decade when it comes to the societal aspects, because it really is. I mean, I, I spoke to someone actually the other day and they, they said, mm, yeah, it's a fad." I said, you are, please tell me you are not. <laughs> you did not just say that, um, but tell me why you think that is the case. This is here to stay. And I got all het up about it, but talk to us about trends and, and, and where you and why you see this uh, being something that is um, here to stay.
0: If it's not here to stay, then I think, God, how disappointing the world will have become. Because actually, in the last in the era towards the end of the last decade, we have seen more inequity, we have mean, we have seen more injustice, we've gone from globalization to deglobalization, and we've got some of the biggest war issues happening in our lifetime i mean you know whatever our views might be did i ever think in my lifetime i would see what's happening in ukraine today absolutely not and our hearts go out to all of those people but that's not something that i would have ever imagined would happen in my lifetime actually that felt like and the next 10 years is going to drive us to the heart of some of the inequity that will go beyond representation. It will go into economic inequity. You know, there is a percentage of the world that lives way below the poverty line. And unless we resolve some of those issues, we aren't going to get to an equitable world. and simultaneously, it's gonna be done in a world where we're all talking about cryptocurrencies and digital money and everything else. So again, I think the next 10 decades will be a balance of extreme innovation, combined with ending up somewhere in this de-globalization, globalization debate, depending on what happens over the next four or five years. But equally at the heart of it, will have to be right-sizing economic inequity. We talk about representation of all aspects, but rarely do we talk about the real issue that is the heart of society, economic inequity. You know, in the country that I live in, which is Britain, where we have some fantastic things, there are still people below the poverty line. I mean, how horrific is that? Because we are living in a society where actually we're a very good country. So I think The next decade is going to push us and people are going to push us because younger people are going to push us on economic inequity and obviously climate. And there's going to be a Greta of economic inequity who's thinking about this right now somewhere in the world is going to pop up and make us reassess the differences between the rich and the poor.
1: Indeed, and social mobility is something that thankfully is so much more coming uh, to the fore, not only in the press but within organizations. We've seen a lot of great work and a lot of, you know, big. Hairy but positive targets put out there by many organisations saying we are going to look at different individuals and in society that don't necessarily need to have degrees, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, which is absolute music to my ears, and I'm sure it is yours as well. Um, but we'll touch on one of the points that you mentioned: is our future generations of leaders and also the youth of today. We are in this crazy, wonderful world where we've got what is it? Five generations now in the workplace, and our future generations of leaders I know will not forgive us if we do not simply um, drive Purpose and values, and put um, cold hard facts behind this, not purely just pay lip service to it. But economic inequity—such powerful, powerful words there—and again pleases me no end to see all of the rich interventions that you are putting in place. Now, before we run out of time, I'd love to go into a little uh, lightning round, if I may. Um, body- I ha- <laughs> pardon. <laughs> I said, this is the one I'm worried about, the lightning. <laughs> <laughs> You have an answer for everything, though. I love it. I kind of, I, it is really. I'm feeling the energy through the screen uh, today, Calvin, because it's so much fun to spar with and talk to. It's conversations like this that I absolutely thrive off. But I am going to ask you the hardest question first. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to answer each before we summarise for today. Um, and the first and most difficult question is: What is your secret to success, or is that one? For me, there is one that is learning to switch off. I think
0: we all need to learn how to switch off as passionate as we are about everything. So I'm really passionate about what I do and I love being at Deloitte and it is, you know, something that is a real important part of my life. But I think one is learning to switch off and two is having an identity that isn't just linked to the role or the place that you're at so my i love what i do i love the organization i work with i can't imagine being anywhere else but Deloitte. but i know that that isn't who i am who i am is beyond just being a partner as well
1: incredibly well articulated and as you say it i'm reflecting myself thinking oh my goodness i don't know that i can entirely do that but it is a brilliant skill and one in which i I do worry about the meld between business, work, so-called balance, quote-unquote, so to have that is superb. And how about authentic leadership? I know it's a, a rather, you know, overused term, shall we say, but what is true authentic leadership to you? And in fact, what is diversity and inclusion for you personally?
0: Authentic leadership, and it is, as you said, a bit of an overused word. But for me, it's really just being true to myself. I mean, you know, the description of me being straightforward, challenging, people would sometimes maybe even say a bit blunt, but hopefully in a nice way. That is authentic leadership, which is just being, you know, actually saying what you think, but in a constructive, positive manner, That's one element, one pillar of authentic leadership for me. The other pillar of authentic leadership for me is taking the roles that you believe in and doing the jobs that you believe in and not doing them just because they are the next promotion or they are the next big thing, doing the stuff that really matters to you. So I've been really fortunate, I think, in my career at Deloitte that I've been always in a place where the people around me have allowed me to do the things that I really believe in. And that's why I think I've been successful at them because those are the things that I wanted to do. Nobody ever forced me to do something that I didn't wanna do. So for me, those are the two things that really define authenticity for me. On your point on D&I, and i i will try and make this short, we we have to have a world that is more representative than we have today. That is simply it. And the hardest thing about championing inclusive leadership, I think, is at every meeting, you are often the voice that asks the questions, right? Because you are the voice to whom it's most obvious in that moment. And um, For all the people that do that every day, don't stop doing it. We need more of us to do it and more of our colleagues will start doing it and then more of our colleagues of colleagues will start doing. But you know what's interesting? The generation below us won't have the challenges that we have. Right. My brother's a generation below me. I think sometimes he just doesn't even understand why I'm even talking about this stuff, because when they're amongst their colleagues and they're amongst their leadership teams, those things don't matter. Well, because my eight year old revenue, my eight year old nephew, I think he thinks I live in an ancient world that doesn't exist for him. So I think every generation it will change, but they will have different issues. And every time there will be a representation issue and every time we'll have to voice our voices to make sure the right thing is done. It is so it's a bit of a lot
1: <laughs> no 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 it, it's a superb answer because we're talking about this evolution diversity and inclusion means so many different things uh your your nephews your nieces the other generations they'll view diversity in very very different ways to us but go back and rewind a couple of years we're talking about legalities on lgbtq plus say that is why we have to watch and see the step change and it's so easy sometimes isn't it to um look at how far there is to go up the mountain you you look and reflect at how far has been trodden actually it is It's immense drives and remaining positive and optimistic wherever we can and reminding ourselves exactly why we do this is, is key. But um, finally, uh, before we, we summarize, I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer on this is what advice, if any, might you give to your younger, younger self, your much younger self who is backing in COV? Uh, as we like to call it here in LEM, Um, what advice might you give to your younger self or someone else who's in a similar situation and about to embark on um, a a corporate career and wanting to achieve some of the lofty heights that you have?
0: I I don't think I would change anything about the journey that I've been on. And for sure, there'll be some regrets in it and there'll be some mishaps in it. But I wouldn't change in any shape or form where I've ended up the one piece of advice that I would give myself is the advice that I'm giving to people who are listening to this podcast, which is, I really wish I'd spoken up earlier. I think I wish I would knew the things that mattered to me in my 40s, in my early 40s, or maybe even in my 30s. And I do wish I'd corralled more support for those things, rather than being a quiet voice in my early 30s, and then accelerating in my 40s. And I think, you know, the last point for me is that when we talk about representation and well, while we're talking about race and we're talking about gender and we're talking about LGBTQ, I often say this at Deloitte, we're also talking about the quiet men who never get the chance either. So it is much broader than what people think. You know, there's a lot of brilliantly quiet men that don't get the opportunities either. So I think we need to make this more inclusive and and target inclusivity in dni rather than just pillars of dni
1: it's a really super point there and again speaks very much to our presumption or our archetypal presumption of what stereotypical diversity means Uh, as you have so well articulate articulated throughout various aspects of the podcast this means so many different things this is a rich tapestry of various different aspects, looking through the pure one sided lens will never get us anywhere, but looking top down, bottom up, looking at the sponsorship, looking at the allyship, looking at the speaking out in the safe spaces amongst the fact uh, that we also need to measure and manage everything that we are doing, all are critical pieces in the jigsaw to finding and beholding a better business future now for future generations of leaders and allyship in the mix with that in addition um so easy is it to think that diversity is merely about gender or race actually uh, allyship and looking at what good really looks like you know again we reflect we have done a lot throughout this conversation on what we have previously seen over the last decade two decades and such actually it's often been the louder ones who have been the ones that have been heard the most. Making sure that we pay attention to your point to those who are um, slightly less forthcoming is equally important if we are to really achieve the deep listening and the vibrance of innovation and, 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 and different thoughts around the virtual boardroom table.
0: Yeah. And it, it, there's an element there that, you know, in this debate for inclusive leadership, the minorities mustn't be fighting each other, right? Because, you know, there's that aspect of it as well, right? Which is social mobility, disability, neurodiversity. There's so many things that we want to drive. So if we make it inclusive and we say we're going to achieve all of those, actually, in different ways, then we'll get there. But we mustn't, we mustn't sort of... It's not divide and conquer. So, you know, the minorities groups have to come together to achieve bigger diversity so I'll celebrate any aspect of diversity when I see someone step into a leadership role it doesn't matter which one of those boxes as we've made them might it be I'm happy with
1: there's a result. Linda, thank you ever so much indeed it's been a thoroughly enjoyable and thought-provoking podcast where we've touched On so many different areas of intersectionality, and I I don't know where on earth I would start to start summarising this podcast. But what I will say is one thing that's jumped out at me is a uh, you know quote that often um, a dear friend of mine, Lord Simon Woolley, often says, and that is that it is not a zero sum game, and that seems to be a bit of a running theme throughout many of the pearls of wisdom you shared. Is that it's not a case of he losing therefore she winning or they losing therefore them winning so on and so forth actually uh, there are many complexities to this and by ultimately collaborating and looking at the future looking at how ESG in particular the S folds into all of these areas it is that amongst Speaking up, utilising the trickle effect, um, being abreast and ahead of the curve and knowing that this affects uh, all different aspects of, of customers, society, business uh, and social uh, economic inequity, which you mentioned. I think that's such a critical piece that stood out certainly for me throughout our time. So thank you very, very much, Carvindra. I hope that we can speak again soon. I thoroughly yes. enjoy speaking with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Take care. My name is Layla mackenzie Dallas. You've been listening to the Diverse and Inclusive Leaders podcast show today with Calvinda Dillon. If you've been affected by anything at all, please don't hesitate to reach out to the team or I get in touch. Uh, we will have uh, show notes post the end of today's show, as well as summaries of learning points. So if you didn't manage to scribble down everything that Calvinda said in time, do not worry whatsoever check us out in the dial global network app or visit us on any of your favorite podcast stores apple podcast spotify or www.dialglobal.org forward slash podcast take care and we will look forward to seeing you again very soon